Something something movie boys. Now on to the subject of butt fucking. <laughs> I knew you would enjoy this. <laughs> Welcome to the episode of the spin-off Doctors that's about the hit David Cronenberg film Existence. <laughs> I'm Jim Sterling. I'm joined by Conrad Zimmerman. How are Hello. you? Hello. I'm doing well. How are you, Jim? I'm good. What's your stance on butt fucking? <laughs> It's uh, not what you expect to be both so uh, so integral to the plot of a major motion picture science fiction romp, <laughs> and 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 romp, yet... thats a word for it. <laughs> but it's 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 also unmistakably there if you have any semblance of awareness whatsoever. It's not subtle and yet understated. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 kind of a, it is an understated theme of the film, which one can look at and examine and extrapolate all sorts of deeper uh, meanings within that within that theme. I've read some really good theses on it well, actually there over you the go. years. Yeah, I'm not someone who thinks like that. <laughs> I'm someone who points and goes, "Bow fucking." <laughs> Existence is David Cronenberg film. I don't know if I mentioned that yet. Released in, I believe, 1999. Yep. It uh, went up against The Matrix year. that year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the year where The Matrix basically destroyed all of the other films that were about the similar topic. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was the turn of the millennium. The year 2000 coming in. It was a, a time of, uh, where we, we were thinking about big changes and, and mm-hmm. the future and what it was going to mean for us as humanity. There was a lot of techno-love and techno-fear at the time. So mm-hmm. we get things like The Matrix, like Existence, like um, Equilibrium. I uh, keep forgetting the name of that one, um, uh, even though I really like it because Sean Pertwee's in it. Uh, a lot of those films came out, a lot of stuff dabbling in basically uh, uh, virtual reality-style stuff, sort of evolved versions of Total Recall. The Matrix was the big famous one, and the other ones just sort of became not obscure so much as as, as cult hits. They were definitely uh, cult hits. There's a there's a following for Equilibrium and and Existence, uh, and only one of them is about butt fucking. <laughs> and it's it's definitely this one. This is definitely about butt fucking in a big this way. This one is, yeah. This a lot of flesh, a lot of orifice. I mean, it's a Cronenberg film, so... Right. And and somebody brought this up uh, that that they sort of viewed this as a companion piece to Videodrome um, because of its, you know, sort of flesh attentiveness. Uh, I mean, if you're into Cronenberg, um, this is really a running theme throughout a lot of his work, Um the sexuality stuff. I mean, he did Crash in 96, which is uh, based on the J.G. Ballard uh, novel about uh, people who get off on car crashes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I mean, even earlier than that, you have uh, Shivers, which is uh, really a, 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 a sex panic film uh, where there's this bioengineered um Virus, I think it is that, uh, or a parasite. It's a parasite because it's got to be creepier than a virus. Of course, it does. It's a Cronenberg film. Uh, it's it's uh, that makes 
breaks down people's sexual inhibitions and uh, functions like a sexually transmitted disease. Uh, and that's it's it's a creepy, creepy movie. And so yeah. th- these elements of sort of addressing uh, body horror transformation uh, as as a result of uh, of mankind's technological advancement. These are sort of running themes that go through a lot of Cronenberg work, and and you know, like even even in the stuff that he didn't create, like he does The Fly, but The Fly fits so neatly into all of this other stuff that he's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think that. This one in particular is probably probably owes the most debt to Philip K. Dick out of everything that he's done. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in that it's uh, and and Dick is really really popular again now. I think this happens like every fifteen years or so. <laughs> okay, a resurgence. We of call it the Dick, Dick cycle. In, yeah, in, in movie parlance. <laughs> but. Uh, but this is a very, you know, in, in that it has this sort of layered consciousness thing going on yeah. and uh, the qu- questioning of reality, not just by the viewer questioning the reality of the film that they're presented with, but the characters within that reality questioning the nature of their reality. Uh, it's a complex movie that's presented like trash. <laughs> and I think that's what's so interesting about it in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, interesting is the word um, that that you can use. It's one of the words that you can <laughs> use to describe existence. Uh, did you know that the X and the Z being capitalized isn't just 90, like late nineties coolness? No, it is. Um, the film has two hundred. This I learned this, of course, watching Amazon X-ray. I didn't look at much of the X-ray stuff because it kept spoiling things before they happened. It kept saying this character is about to do an assassination. I'm like, stop it! <laughs> stop it! Stop it! Let me find the the toothy bone gun on my own, please. <laughs> Let me do some of it, but one thing I did notice when I I was just sort of idly mousing over the movie because I watched it in the browser, um, and a fact popped up mentioned there are two Hungarian producers that worked on Existence, mm-hmm. and the letters between the X and the Z that are capitalized, Istan, is Hungarian for God, which also is a, a sort of a, a running theme in in this film. Yep. Well, and but then it's it's. Again, another one of those beautiful aspects of like nothing's wasted. Everything's layered into the narrative in some way, because that's also such a PR fucking thing to do, right? Yeah, yeah. Such a PR thing, <laughs> and this film says things about you know. You and I had talked about it a little bit before you'd watch it, and I'd commented that you know it, it's not really clear to me how familiar. Cronenberg is with the games industry, but he's clearly, you know, experienced uh, by this point, you know, he's had a long career up to now. He knows enough about the entertainment industry to see how it probably worked if he didn't have a deep invested (laughs) knowledge of the games industry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were talking about that because sometimes people on the, when I when I tackle certain subjects on the Jimquisition, people say, well, that could just easily apply to many industries many companies right and i'm like well yeah that's kind of the point like 
a lot of this this stuff bleeds over and is all wrapped up in this this version of capitalism that we have now. And yeah, this is probably going to be a little bit political this episode because of the film we're talking about. So, you know, deal with it. Um, but yeah, and, and, it's sort of all and, wrapped up in that crony, plutocratic sort of system. Another thing I'd bring up, I, I never say this, but if you haven't watched the movie, in this particular rare instance, I would probably suggest that you do. Before, just for the very reason uh, that that Jim brought up with X-Ray, you know, <laughs> letting him know someone's about to be assassinated. Um, it's an interesting film, and I think it merits watching without two goons totally ruining every aspect of it. <laughs> Over-examining and yeah. just wrecking, wrecking the good film. Uh, because Existence, it, I mean, it is a good film. It's a good yep. film about a really bad game. Um, <laughs> yes which yes, bothered it is. me for a lot of it like it, there was a, there's a point in the film where she's like she basically more or less straight up says that hey this video game it, she might as well looked at the as well she should have looked at the camera and said hey in this scene i'm talking about how the shittiness of this video game and the lack of choice is an allegory for real life uh, I think that's what she should have done. Uh, but even with that, even with the shittiness of the game being somewhat allegorical, um, the the lingering critic in me was just, this is a really bad game. Mm-hmm. It is. It's pretty Not bad. Not an immersive experience uh, to have characters sort of do the whole David Cage game, a loading screen thing with their heads uh, while they're waiting for the bit of linear dialogue that you don't even know you're saying or why you're saying it. I get it that it's an allegory, but Existence is a shit guy. <laughs> and it's, well, and it's, but it's also like so many fucking games. Yeah, yeah. He nailed it somehow. <laughs> yeah. He may have never have even picked up a controller in his life, but, <laughs> but he nailed it. More so now than in 1999. Yeah, he's ahead of his time. Definitely. It's Actually, in all essence, like, Existence is a Quantic Dream game. Yeah, I think that that's... Yes, yes, you're, you're right. It really is. The in-game, I mean, just structurally... Yeah. Oh. The, the illusion of choice, the plot that just goes off the rails the, the threadbare attempts scene, at metaphor the threadbare attempts at metaphor um inappropriate sex that just has no place in there and is there to be there which they even point out in the film yeah that it's just there to heighten the tension for the next sequence um existence basically predicted david cage's career trajectory <laughs> Minus the butt fucking, there's not much butt fucking in in David Cage's games. Uh, although, uh, he, like David Cronenberg, he has a, a sort of he looks at sex through a fucked up lens. It's just a, a sadder lens than Cronenberg's more engaging one. <laughs> so anyway, that's my contractually obligated bashing of David Cage out the way. Um, do we want to talk about existence at all? Yes, I think we should do that. All right. Well, 
yeah, we're gonna. I'll probably put in a little bit of a piano music bit here, and then Conrad will take us through the journey that is existence. A good movie about a shit game. We open with a presentation introducing a new game, Existence. Uh, that's uppercase X, uppercase Z, as the uh, the PR goon is uh, quick to point out by Antenna Research. Uh, And he's presenting this to a focus group that's meeting in a church. Uh, Now, the the PR guy says it's... uh, And he's played by Christopher Eccleston, who I like. Um, I like Eccleston. He's a good egg. Yeah. uh, I I was watching this last night to to do the synopsis, and uh, and my, my wife asked what I was doing and wanted to know more about it. And I told her it's not a thing that you'd want to watch. It's it's not a film you'll like. It's a film that will demand you to think about it and not entertain you and make you sad. And, and she looked at the screen where I'd paused it and it has Christopher Eccleston's name on. She's like, oh, I like him. And I was like, yeah, well, Willem Dafoe's in it too, but that's not the point. <laughs> You're not going <laughs> to like it. <laughs> um. So anyway, he says it's a special night as the group's going to be led by the game's world-renowned designer, Allegra Geller, uh, who is sort of standing off to one side. This is Jennifer Jason Lee. Uh, she, you know, she blew, She chose between this and Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, well, she had already shot Eyes Wide Shut. Like, mm-hmm. she'd already shot her part in Eyes Wide Shut, uh, took on this movie, they needed to do reshoots of what she'd done in Eyes Wide Shut, and she stuck with Existence, and good on her. Because, and I'm not super familiar with her as an actress. Like, I couldn't pick her out of a crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's really good in this. Yeah, because yeah, she's good in this. There is a, a certain, because of the way the film is written, structured, what it is, there's a certain type of acting required for it that bad actors do without trying and look stupid. <laughs> Good actors would have to put in an effort to pull it off, and everybody here qualifies. Yeah, and that's definitely. W- that's what's so kind of fascinating about <laughs> it. Um so she's uh, sort of get, getting herself a, a cup of coffee while this is going on. And, and she has this fascinating um, backpack that I kind of want to – it's a ski boot. Yeah. R- yeah? yeah? She's wearing a ski boot on her back, and I think that's supposed to make her kind of cyberpunky. I think so because it looks all – it's got a little bit of a futury look to it. Mm-hmm. And, and so it looks almost like what – what you'd make for a makeshift backpack in a dystopia. Yes. That's kind of interesting. Um, So the crowd totally loses their shit when she comes up on stage uh, and she says a few words about the potential of games. (laughs) And it's cringy, right? (laughs) Yes. Like it's, it's, they could be so much. And it's a speech we've heard a thousand times from a thousand <laughs> indie developers appearing at uh, fucking uh, the Indicate Awards or, you know, one of these events talking about, uh, it's, yeah. it's delightful. Like the only thing he got wrong was the, the empty church, like the fact that it looks like a community 
meeting. And um, that and it's in not that some in sterile, it's... shitty back room somewhere. That's but the only thing that that makes it different. From that doesn't the ring true. But that is, is itself part of the world that he's creating around this stuff, sure, right? Sure. Because uh, as you'll quickly see, all of the locations in this film are weird. Mm-hmm. Um. So she um, makes an announcement about how this game's a whole new game system with new hardware. Um, mm-hmm. that, that hypes up the crowd. I mean, it's all here. Uh, pro, they're, they're prototype MetaFlesh game pods. And 12 volunteers are chosen from this group of uh, assembled people. Now, as this is being sorted out, a latecomer arrives and has their body and bag sc- scanned by a security guard who's really looking for recording devices because they don't want their product being stolen. The guy asks if it's a weapons check. But no, it's about the recording devices because this is a like a $38 million game. <laughs> they don't want pirated. Yeah. And I mean, let's face it, at that cost of production, there's a reason why existence has microtransactions in it. But the... <laughs> The creation of, of flash pods is just very expensive. And they never rose the base price of the flash pods. So, so that's why the industry does the things it does, okay? And let's, let's talk about the flash pods. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, now the guy who has his bag searched, we, we get this is the first sort of glimpse of gaming hardware in this world that we see. and it's Which is sort of... technically like gaming software because there's nothing hard about it. Well, it's just thing, a big bag the, of squish. The thing that he has is, is sort of a firmer plastic. It's very clearly plastic. And, um, and, and actually, when did the Dreamcast come out? Um, it it came out around the same time because apparently Dreamcast sponsored the film or something. Okay. In some country. Someone on Twitter said it. I can't remember the exact phrase, but they said there was some Dreamcast tie-in sponsorship thing. Because if you look at how like controllers have shifted and morphed over the years... Like, it's not inconceivable for some weird futurist to think, oh, well, here, future game consoles are going to be these kind of semi-bulky but smooth plastic things that people will set in their laps and manipulate. And that's what's in this guy's bag. And he says it's antiquated. And so then cut to the people up on stage. And what they're doing, what they have, are these fleshy masses that are, you know, they look organic. Yeah. It's a Cronenberg film, in yeah. case anyone has forgotten by this point. Right. This will remind you. Yeah, and, and if, if you're not familiar with Cronenberg, huh, huh, well, <laughs> that's this that's what this is. I mean, it's it it made a joke in Rick and Morty for a reason. Yes. Uh this is just what the guy does. And so they look like the oversized Xbox controller, like the original one, the bear that they're bringing back. Yeah. To me, it looks like, imagine Bruce Banner crossed with a flashlight who's just gotten angry. Oh, and you see these spots that look like they kind of have what would be uh, analog nubs. Yeah. But they're just sort of pustuly things. (laughs) They're like almost nipples. It looks like a sex toy gone wrong. 
I mean, yeah. that's that's the ultimate look of it. A big lump of meat <laughs> pulsing around with little knobs, like like little warts on it and, <laughs> that you and, fiddle with. And coming off of these pods are um, basically umbilical cords. That's the yeah. cabling for it. They're creepy. Um... And so, and these are, and they're called umbi cords, by the way. <laughs> like they, they branded the concept. They cutified an umbilical cord, Ugh. which again, a damning statement on capitalism. Yep. Uh, if so, they, if if companies could find a way to sell you umbilical cords, mass produced, <laughs> they would, and they'd call them umbies. <laughs> Yes. Uh, so everybody's connected uh, between these umbi cords and the game pods uh, on their laps, uh, sitting in a semicircle on stage with Allegra in the center, and she begins downloading the game to the players, warning that it's going to be a wild ride. And everyone on the stage starts entering this trance-like state. Now, in the audience... Uh, the late arrival removes his game pod from his bag and reaches inside of it to pull out a strange gun. Yeah, a bone gun. A gun made of bone. Like like a gun designed by H.R. Geiger. Yeah. Or, it, yeah. or a gun that, like, the Tyranids from Warhammer 40K would use. And he carries it to the stage and fires the gun, uh, yelling death to the demoness Allegra Geller, uh, hitting Allegra in the shoulder. Uh, PR guy also takes one in the chest uh, before the gunman is repeatedly shot by two seemingly unconnected armed people. It's not clear who they are. They're just there. They have guns and they engage in some serious overkill on this assassin. I mean, if, you, if you're if you going to do a job, do it right. Right. And they made sure he was dead. So the uh, the security guard uh, is, is holding the PR guy who's been shot, and he, the PR guy tells him to keep Allegra safe, saying that seemingly they have enemies in their own house, and he's to trust nobody. So the guard, on his way to get Allegra, grabs the strange bone gun, and they leave. And everybody just sort of walks out. Like, they're just walking out outside, and there's no, like, confused groups of people talking about what happened. They just, they walk out, casuals can be. Yeah, yeah, they're kind of a bit concerned, but not that bothered. Right. This and, was inconvenient for them. Yes. Um, they get into a vehicle and start driving, and they assess their situation. Now, they are in this rural area where apparently various game development entities do exist uh, that Allegra's familiar with. So they have places they could go, but she doesn't know whom they can trust. Mm-hmm. But she does know that the security guard's name is Ted Peichel and he shouldn't have his weird flesh 
cell phone thing. Yeah, yeah. His uh, his cell phone is a little white lump of dough that lights up. It seems to have contours to shape to a a to fingers. If you were to you know just hold it like you were yeah. masturbating. Yeah. The problem I had with this was I. This was me looking at it thinking, well, okay, so we're in a world where technology is basically organic in some way. Why are they driving a regular-looking truck? Why aren't they driving around in fucking Akira? <laughs> like, that's what I was thinking at this point. It was like the the nature of the truck sort of... But again, maybe that's something he did on purpose. Who knows? It's a weird... But it is a weird thing, right? It's a, It's a clash. It's a clash. But then much of this film clashes on purpose, so who knows? But they should be driving around in fucking Akira. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so she has him throw it. She throws his phone out the window so they they, they can't be tracked by anybody. Yep. Um, Luckily, though, glass won't break on that because it's a, it's a ball of dough that lights up. <laughs> right? Yeah, you're not going to destroy the screen. and it's He won't be able to play Angry Birds on it, though. Oh, I don't know. You could throw it at birds. That'd probably make them angry. <laughs> we also learned that Ted Peichel's not really so much a security guard as a marketing trainee. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have a gun. Um, they pull over so that Peichel can extract the bullet from Allegra's shoulder. Um... And this is kind of an interesting first scene to really develop the relationship and pos- relative positions of power in this movie. Because a lot of uh, the subtextual stuff revolves around a, a this power dynamic that exists between Pykel and Allegra, right? Yeah, sure. Uh, and and so this is the first example where we're shown Allegra's sort of certainty and confidence and, and, and almost experience, weird experience, incongruous experience for who we're told this character is. Yeah. Uh, we're told she's a game designer. We're told that she is shy. And that she would prefer to not be around people and just live in her game worlds. Um, but we're shown here that she is totally down with this guy she's just met digging a bullet out of her shoulder like it's no big thing. Yeah. And, and the other thing, of course, is she is, throughout most of the film, predominantly the, the, the more dominant figure. Right. And she's the mentor. character Pykel is in a more submissive um, position. And in this scene where he's digging the thing out on her command, basically, um, I, I do believe Cronenberg accurately predicted the, uh, the concept of the heel slut. <laughs> yeah. Which is a thing in games that people do. So he cottoned onto that kink ahead of the time. It was 1999. It was a time of predictions. Uh, it turns out that this uh, bullet that he's fishing out is a human tooth. 
uh, causing them to examine the bone gun in more detail and realize it was designed to circumvent security measures. Uh, I'm surprised they weren't curious about it before. Like, <laughs> if I'm shot with a gun that's that looks like something H.R. Geiger would make, I'd be really curious about it. But they're, they're only really bothered once they find out it fires teeth. She, yeah, she sort of fiddles around with it while they're in the car. But that there's no real attention paid or consideration to it. They're they're too busy thinking about where they can go. Uh, yeah, not until they they work out it's got teeth in it does it bother them. Yep, and and one of the ones in the clip has a cavity in it. This oh yeah, kinda, they point that out. Yeah. Yeah, specifically point out it has a cavity. Uh, then they uh, drive to a motel, and uh, in the room they eat fast food from Perky Pats. Uh, did you Amazon X-ray this? Because I'm uh, sure it, no, I'm sure it had a mention here. Uh, I didn't, but looking at it and its prominence, I guessed it was something. They they hold on it twice in this scene to really give you an opportunity to look at it. It is a reference specifically to Philip K. Dick, and um, the Amazon X-ray stuff, which pulls its information from IMDb. Uh, specifically references the Dick novel The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch as sort of the origin reference point for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's actually a little further back than that. Uh, there is a short story that uh, Dick published called The Days of Perky Pat. And just as a, a brief synopsis, it's this uh, post-nuclear war um, environment in California, and these people are using this doll uh, that they they hold, and 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 it transports them to a time before the war, and it's so it's this you know uh, illusory experience that they can you know take comfort in and and feel safe and so forth. And it's ostensibly designed for children. But what winds up happening is that only the adults who remember what life was like before the nuclear war happened uh, cling to these dolls and uh... spend out the rest of their days in that nostalgic haze. And the children go on to disinterested to build a new society. Um, and so it, uh, that reference really says a lot but it's also a, it's a deep cut. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's it's. Now you've explained the whole thing. It's like, oh right, yeah. But but as you say, yeah, you have you have to dig for that. Yeah, it's a it's a deep cut. Uh, interesting and and really kind of belies what's going on in a lot of ways throughout uh, this film. Cool reference, well placed. Uh. And Allegra, Allegra connects to her game pod in this hotel room or motel uh, briefly to wander around Existence, which we don't see her do at this point. We just see her sort of connected on the bed. And she yeah, says they hold off on showing the, the actual titular Existence for quite a while. Yeah, they, they hold off for an impressive amount of time. Yeah, there's a they spend a good stretch just getting to it, uh, get, just even getting into the game represents a challenge for the characters. Um, she says she likes it in there, but that it requires another player 
in order for the, there to be the real experience. And that's something interesting about the games in this. They're competitive still. Yeah. Uh, Either that or they, they, you know, they predicted that time during the mid to late 2000s where co-op was forced into everything. That could be, yeah. Uh, but it is, it is sort of odd, an odd thing that, uh, that games are viewed as necessitating multiple players in this world uh, in order mm-hmm. to actually be games. Well, that's how you push the games as service model. <laughs> that that's how they manage to integrate loot pustules into the experience. <laughs> uh, Pykel wants to contact Antenna Research for backup, but Allegra is way more interested in checking out Pykel's bioport. Um, and he doesn't have one. Yeah. Which, which, and now this is the, the first sort of sexualization of the concept of these bioports in this scene. She is Randy with her level of interest in jacking into this. This is like there is a an erotic energy coming off of her in this scene that's very clear. And, and she likes a good type bioport, basically. She, she does, and and they're buttholes, everyone. <laughs> but they're they're elective buttholes. They're buttholes you opt in for. Yeah, yeah. Um, unlike, unlike, unfortunately, we don't live in a world where you can get a fixer up a ass and fix it up and attach it to yourself. Um, these are. Little holes that go in your back that you can put umbilical cords into so that your flesh box can play <laughs> Total Recall, but worse. Uh, so, yeah, this sort of shocks Allegra that, that Ted doesn't have a bioport because he's trying to get into the games industry and he's not playing the games if he doesn't have a bioport. Yes, which again is true still of most games companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you don't have a bioport, I mean, really, what are you doing there? Uh, Pykel also explains that he has a phobia about being penetrated surgically. Yeah, they keep this really subtle. Because <laughs> I thought they were talking about butt-fucking, but then he said so. Like, oh, they're not talking about butt-fucking. Except they're totally talking about butt-fucking. They're talking about butt-fucking. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, Allegra is concerned that her game pod may have been damaged when its download of Existence at the church was interrupted. And the only way that she can confirm that Existence has not been contaminated in some way is to play the game with someone she trusts, which means Ted's going to need to get a bioport. Uh, he agrees to that. Then jokes that then makes a joke about how oh they'll just wander down to a country gas station at midnight to get an illegal bioport installation, which is exactly what happens next. Yeah, yeah. There's no no metaphor there. That that is literally where they go, and it's called country, called country gas, gas station. Country gas station. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's it's it is flagrant. It says it's uh, you see the corner of the building and it says country gas station at each end of the of the vertice of the corner. Yeah. The vertex. 
in case anyone is under any illusion that this is not country gas station. Uh, and they get gas from a guy named Gas. Yes. Yes. Played by your friend and mine, Willem Dafoe. Hey, everyone, it's me, Willem Dafoe. <laughs> I'm playing a character called Gas. And let me tell you, it is a Gas. <laughs> Oh God! Uh, I, it's always nice to see Willem, and it's always a joy. He he is always a delight, and it's rare that we get an opportunity to talk about Willem Dafoe on the spin-off Doctors. I mean, this is the first or, time. Yeah, yeah, and he's normally starring in you know, he's normally too good to be in films connected <laughs> to video games in any way. Yeah, like this was a Cronenberg thing. It was weird shit. So Willem Dafoe was like, "Sign me up." And, is and it weird he shit? Is, I'm into it. He is intense. Yes. Uh, he is w- weird and a little off kilter. Just it's all of the things he does so well. The character's perfect for him, and he just leans just enough into it. It's yeah. it's right on the edge of going over the top and being truly nutty. But yeah, he doesn't go like full boondock or anything. Like no. he. He keeps enough in reserve, but but it is it, it his presence helps add to that. Just everything's a bit off feel mm-hmm. to the film. Uh, um, Willem's always good at that. Always good at that. A bit off. Allegra asks him about bioports, and he's super cagey about this until he. Rec- I don't know nothing about ass fucking. <laughs> That's what he says. Until he recognizes Allegra pulling a newspaper clipping with her photo from his wallet. Like, (laughs) weird. Yes. And then he drops to his knees in supplication, saying that she changed his life. Um, so that happens. Uh, Gas and Pykel go into the garage, and Gas gushes, Philosophical, I think you'd say. I wrote waxes in here, but that's not really describing what he's doing. Yeah, I don't know if if anything Willem Dafoe's ever done could be described as waxing. <laughs> that's just too normal. Although, could you imagine? Oh my God, could you imagine? Can you imagine Willem Dafoe as the guy running the Cobra Kai? <laughs> Dojo in a remake of Karate Kid. <laughs> Why didn't they do that uh, when they did the remake? They missed a fucking trick there. Oh, uh, that would be so good. Oh, uh, they fucked up big time. But yeah, he's, and and he talks about a, uh, one of Allegra's prior games, Art God, capital A, capital G. You, the player, Art God. It is. AJ, isn't it? It is the worst film student (laughs) shit ever that this mechanic has now found relatable and (laughs) transformative in his life. Because Uh, he gets to be God the mechanic. (laughs) Um... And so he, uh, he he prepares to uh, to install Pykel's bioport. And outside, yeah. 
there's this very interesting scene uh, where Allegra's wandering about, just just sort of wandering, like kicking dust and throwing pebbles at this odd fascination and encountering a two-headed lizard. As you do. Which she pets for a little while. And Not terrible special effects. Not terrible um, animation on the lizard. No, not not awful. Um, it's no, it's no Mortal Kombat reptile. It's, uh, I mean, it's not great. No, uh, and, and by modern standards, it would certainly not be good. But for 1999 standards, it's not bad, and it's also really limited. There are only a couple of scenes that use computer animation, and uh, and it's really just this object that they make. I think. Like they put everything into this in terms of the I think CG, so, yeah. everything. And, and even watching it today, it's not like that. It's not like watching Attack of the Clones, which came out later than this. No, where where it's embarrassingly cartoonish. And um, and, and the world itself it. is established as being kind of surreal already by this point, anyway. So it's it, in a strange way even fits in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. The uh, but now this is, this is a scene, that in another worse film we'd be bitching about, and I think that's important to point out, that, it, is not necessary. To the development of the story, we would think. Except this film actually earns it by the end. Yes. yes. Uh. That's it. This film does a lot of things that that seem incongruous and and later, yeah. yeah. On us on the surface level, contribute to a shitty film, but because of, I mean, first of all, it's all performed and directed and shot well enough that you never feel like you're watching a shitty film, even when you're questioning the shitty things in it. Yeah. But then, as you say, it earns it and then turns it into something more clever. And then you're like, oh, oh, no, it wasn't a shit film. I was just being tricked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's if, if I mean, well, we're going to spoil this anyway, I guess. Right. Well, I mean, that this whole thing is. Yeah. Don't, I mean, if, if, if anyone wanted to be surprised by existence, they're really listening to the wrong podcast. Right. So, but the. Uh, it's it's because we, you know, having viewed the film now, we know that they are at this point already in another game, right? And this scene is the first opportunity that Allegra has to be alone in this world. And mm-hmm. she's exploring it. Like she is aware of the fact that she is in an in artificial world. It doesn't seem like Ted is aware of that. Like, he doesn't appear to have any sort of consciousness of that. But Allegra does, because what she's doing here, she's kicking dust and observing how the dust moves and has, you know, it functions like dust would in her real world. And the sound uh, a pebble makes as it bounces off of the gas pumps. Yeah, yeah. Initial viewing, it looks like just weird childish behavior. Mm Mm-hmm. But, that that yeah, you could write that. off as her being an artist, right? Yeah. Her, her being yeah. a creative and sort of looking at the world with childlike wonder. That's it. It's like well, on first viewing, it's not too out of character. It's just, again, a little bit off. 
and and a Give strange him, uh, it's a strange thing to devote forty seconds to in a yeah. in an otherwise well paced film. Um, so yeah, I get the impression that this Cronenberg's a clever little. <laughs> so the process for installing a bioport is twofold. First, Gas uses a stud finder to paint a target on Pykel's back, and then a and and. and it's sort of inferred that that's the thing that's used to put the thing in the back at first. You know, and you're like, oh, this is sort of semi-intimidating, but not too intimidating piece of industrial hardware. But then you find that, you know, oh, well, that's just the thing that you use to make the mark for where the fucking huge pneumatic gun (laughs) that's way more intimidating is going to be pressed against your flesh and fired into you. Yes. And from what I've literally seen of Willem Dafoe's penis, (laughs) a lot more suitable for the penetration scene. <laughs> I mean, when he hangs down, I mean, I mean, the it, ma- many of the people listening to this, if they're doing their jobs right, should already have seen him on Vimeo doing that weird dance naked. Willem Dafoe is uh, what you would call a knee knocker. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, fucking massive. Like. <laughs> uh so he only manages to get the first part finished uh, when Pykel finds out that Gas has only done this twice before. And he chickens out. And it takes Allegra coming inside and finding Pykel holding Gas back with a wrench and convincing him again to go through with this, uh, telling him to dominating him, telling him to break out of his shell. Um, and then it's boom, they just, they install it and it's this instant cutaway shot. It's, it's sharp. It's a great shot change, uh, where he's just blasted in the back with this, this thing Mm -hmm. and his, uh, legs are temporarily paralyzed as a result of, of this. It's a, a side effect, uh, a numbing, uh, for the process of inserting this bioport, this does not stop Allegra from wanting to play with his new hole, like, immediately. Mm-hmm. Like, we talk about how not subtle <laughs> all of this is, but goddamn, is it not subtle. It's on the nose. Like, new ports <laughs> tend to be a little bit tight, she says, as she's working... Uh, her finger around the rim of this kind of butthole. It's puckered. <laughs> it is puckered, but it also has this sort the of... The port is exposed for our pleasure. <laughs> it has this sort of cross-depression at at four points. Yeah. It, it looks like... It looks like the North Star as a butthole. <laughs> and she pulls out some industrial lubricant. Gives a whole new meaning to Fist of the North Star. <laughs> <laughs> she, she drags industrial lubricant. It's WD-60. Yeah, it's not WD-60. Um, it's it's two other letters sixty because it was like two letters across from oh. WD, so it's like X 
uh, oh, XE is it? or something, XE60. It's like they, they made it. But the they future. made the can. The can is like the in terms of the the design of the can, it's WD-40, which yeah. is the brand. It's supposed, supposed to be like to evolve, a, an, evol- evolve. an evolution of WD-40, I guess. Like yeah. A future version of it. Something like that. And this little can, she sprays it and, and, and just, I mean, the delicacy and yet urgency with which she circles the circumference of this hole with her finger and it I mean there's mm-hmm. there's just no it's out the window I mean <laughs> and I should say as well this is just the first like the first bit of it it gets less subtle later yeah it... like this is still this is still the film playing its cards close to its chest <laughs> while she's fingering his butthole and lubing it up <laughs> Uh, she she stuffs it with an umby cord. As you do. And they fire up the game pod, but when they do that, sparks fly within it. And Allegra freaks out, blaming Pykel for being too excited and hmm. damaging her pod. <laughs> yes. Little, little first-timers... Um, nervous reaction causing a bit of feedback. This is uh, subtle. What's happening right now? I mean, compared to later in the film, I guess you're this right. This is as subtle as it gets. I guess you're right. Um, but this has possibly destroyed the only existing version of existence, which is uh contained in this pod. Um, it's also. <sighs> There's also a little bit of a weird relationship that Allegra has with her game pod, which is, I guess, I mean, it's gone into in greater detail a little further, but I, I, I suppose now is probably the time to bring it up. It's certainly the first time the the relationship is 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 detailed in any significant way. Because where where we have this uh, sort of uh. What would you call it? like a, a mentor student relationship going on between uh Pykel and Allegra? Yeah, at least on one level. On, yeah. on one level there. Uh the relationship that Allegra has with this game pod is, is very clearly a, a a mother-child relationship, a mother-daughter relationship. She refers yeah. to it uh in the feminine. Um and and it's interesting how there's that relationship running in parallel and in some time well and not quite parallel with this Pykel Allegro relationship and Pykel's growing experience in the realm of butt fucking. Yeah. That's happening yeah. here. And so there's this weird triangle between these things that I appreciate and love because it makes me deeply uncomfortable <laughs> and and by design it's not something that's made that's designed that's that's making me uncomfortable through inaction or error on the part of the artist yeah it's 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 supposed to be a, a you know an un, unnerving experience that sort of keeps you 
from being too comfortable with the film. Like, right. the, the film never wants you to grow too comfortable with it, and it's scenes like this that, that keep that along, keep that sense of unease going. Uh, thankfully, before we have too much time to think about how kind of unsettling all of this is, um, Gas comes in to accept responsibility for everything that's just happened. He's holding a shotgun, and he reveals that there's a $5 million bounty on Allegra's head with a bonus for destroying the game, which is what he attempted to accomplish by installing a faulty bioport in Ted. As he's about to shoot Allegra, Ted tags gas in the back with the bioport injector, killing him. Uh, I like the way this scene is shot and performed a lot uh, because we basically we see Willem Dafoe in the foreground about to pull the trigger. We hear the thud of the uh, pneumatic injector behind him and we see, you know, coming out the front of uh, Willem Dafoe's uh, chest, torso, and he falls to give us Pykele in the background, who is still numb in the legs. And and had to, it is sort of lift, trying to lift himself up with the, the gun. And it is just a really well-composed and executed shot. Um, yeah. one, one of yeah. many is, is in this film. Is it in the same shot that he falls out of the chair as well. I think I think they maintain the shot until he falls out of the chair, yeah. Cuz yeah, you the 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 positioning and everything there really is good. It's it's very well framed. It's it it you know, I I wouldn't say the cinematography in this is is really brilliant. Um nor would I th- say that that's an aspect of Cronenberg's films, uh generally speaking. I don't think he's particularly uh amazing as a cinematographer. But when he frames a shot well, he really frames a shot well. Um, and, and this one is pretty perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, Allegra then takes them to a ski lodge. Another incongruous location. Yeah, this uh, bit annoyed me because of Pykele, who's Jude Law. Um, his, his response when they get there is, we're going skiing. And I'm like, you just went to country gas for, for for anything except gas like why would you think we there you were literally going skiing at the ski resort you fuck it's it, yeah he it's it's kind of strange but i mean i guess i can see i can see from a character perspective why he's asking these questions cuz i think he's a city slicker it's like i get it i get we're supposed to keep on with the naivety mm-hmm. but by this point I wouldn't have a. I wouldn't. I wouldn't think that her plan was to actually go skiing. Right. And her response being, "Oh, you know, don't be silly. Nobody goes skiing in real life anymore." Well, but that's. And we're supposed to think, "Oh, it's all. Every everyone does everything virtually." Why isn't her response? Why the fuck do you think I'm going? I've been shot for one thing, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's it's interesting because that's. That's not her res- her response. That's her later response to him asking, "What if someone else wants to come skiing?" All oh, right, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's but yes, it is. It is getting it's starting she to get a little tired. She should have hit him in the head. Yeah, she I should agree. have hit him at that point when he said, "We're going skiing." What? What do you think we've been doing? 
We just drove away from Willem Dafoe trying to kill us. Yeah, I want to go on a ski adventure right now. And we see, now, as, as Pykel gets out of the car here, we see uh, another two-headed lizard on the hood of the car. And this is uh, uh, another sort of example of the way the world is playing with us as the viewer because now Allegra seems to know all about them despite her sort of childlike curiosity at it earlier she says they're common now uh, and a sign of the times um, they go inside and meet with Kiri Vinegar, who is uh, Allegra's mentor mm-hmm. and Played by Ian Holm yep and he's great um I, I, the thing I think of when I think of him is um, uh, Fifth Element. All right. Uh, where he, he plays the monk in that and, and is quite entertaining there. Um, so he promises them safe harbor and, and assistance. And he performs surgery on the pod. Uh, while he's do- and while he's doing this, basically he explains to Pykele and by extension us, the audience, that these game pods are basically... Frankenstein animals uh, grown from mutated amphibians and that they're powered by the body's own electrical current. Uh, while they're there, Vinegar also... I find it interesting as well, Ian Holm is the android in Alien. And there are many... I mean, I've already mentioned H.R. Geiger, but you can compare this to Alien in several... Ways. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Not least him operating on this biomechanical fleshly thing that once dissected could look like the insides of a face ogre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I hadn't considered that, but you're absolutely right. Um, while they're there, Vinegar also replaces Ted's faulty bioport with a fresh one. And uh, they give he gives them a, a guest chalet to, to stay in. So they, they go there, and once they're there... Allegra is, once again, hot to trot in terms oh, yeah. of getting into existence. And, uh, by... and she blames half of it on his port. Yeah. She's like, your, port, your port's hungry for a stuff in. Yeah. Don't say those exact words. Like, she is, yeah, she is projecting her, her lust onto this sort of semi-unwilling, like, not quite consenting uh, Ted. Um. And he's, she's like, you know, fresh holes always want uh, an umbilical cord shoved in them. Oh, and, and, and he's he's seemingly frightened by this threshold that he's about to cross and, and how mm-hmm. it might change him. Uh, and it is just really about butt sex, guys. Like, <laughs> can't emphasize it enough for you. <laughs> it is about butt sex. Can't emphasize just how deep in the butt sex this film is. And uh, so Allegra falls back on her need to confirm the continued coherence of Existence as a, a product to convince him that this is something he has to do. She leverages that uh, sort of power and, and obligation. And uh, she fires up the game pod and Pykele finds himself in some sort of video game shop. Mm-hmm. Which looks like what video game stores looked like in the '90s: crappy wire racks with mm-hmm. bad packaging, people Good old days. milling about it. Yeah, 
run by a guy who looks like he'd attack you. Mm-hmm. And uh, and, and and so Pykele, uh marvels at, at at the realism of all of this, and you know they talk about the transition into the world briefly, which is kind of interesting in that it just sort of happened but there are you know slow fades that could be done or you know and, and they talk about these like their film transitions uh in a way which is sort of interesting mm-hmm. um he also uh, picks up a, a a micropod which is now like a a smaller a miniaturized version of the the game pods that they have but this is like palm sized um, and this leads to a conversation with the store clerk named Darcy, who speaks in an awkward, stilted manner with some expressions sort of loosely connected to what came before them. He is every video game NPC you've ever had a conversation with, every shopkeeper. Yeah. Uh, with the canned dialogue that you know, kind of, you know, makes sense in the context of what you're thinking in your head you would say if you were to speak freely to them. Uh, it's sort of parsing the response and giving you the closest analog to what you said. Um, mm-hmm. Very, very well done. Yeah. Um, but it, again, sort of, it's, it's well done as a film and really well done once you've watched the whole thing. But when you watch it as a first-timer, a lot of it is this... This is so shit as a game. Mm-hmm. And it and it is. <laughs> um, and you can chalk a lot of that up to this is new technology. Like this yeah. this is a launch title. Basically, yeah. Yeah, the kind of thing that in this film's universe is destined to have people look back on it and say, I can't believe we thought they that was convincing. Right? Yeah. It's sort of like, you know, early PS1 3D graphics and stuff. Uh this ends up with Darcy taking Pykele and Allegra to a back room where Pykele, seemingly against his nature, just yells at the clerk when asked who sent them. And now this is where shit gets really interesting, I think. Yes. Uh, Pykele, Allegra explains, has just performed a scripted action that his character in the game needs to make in order to advance the story. So, just like in video games, you know, and the sort of interactive limitations and confines that we have uh, in existing video games, this follows a script on some level. And certain things have to happen at certain points in order for it to progress. Uh, There's a, a, a... A page on TV tropes called But Thou Must, where no matter what you might want to do or what you might think is is in character, there are certain things that you just have to be railroaded through in order for the, the mission, the, the campaign, the story, what have you, to progress. Uh, and and this is that in film in film form. But it's not just um, it's not just that in film form because if if we are to take it as you know what what it means to inhabit the role of a character as immersively as in a world as immersive as Existence is supposed to be, 
that kind of incongruity sort of creates an existential breakdown, right? Yeah, yeah. And and it's and that's fascinating to think about. The the things that you do because you have to to advance the story. And, and especially if they're against your nature as a as a person. Right. How many more of those actions you perform that are against your character are you going to perform until you get very confused about who you are? It, it, it creates a cognitive dissonance. Uh, yeah. That is, and it's, it's interesting to, to see that conveyed because that is one of the great challenges of interactive art that, that we face, I think, is the storytellers need, the creators need to create the story versus the player's um, desire to feel like they're the one doing it. Uh, and, and so it's, it's a fascinating perspective on agency, I think, here. It's, a, it's really well executed. Uh, they have this conversation right in front of the clerk, uh, but Darcy's in an idle animation. Yeah, and and at this point, he does very much look like one of the loading screens from Heavy Rain. Yeah. Uh, he's only going to respond to appropriate prompts, so it doesn't matter that they have this conversation in front of him because he's not real. He's just a game character. He's an NPC, yeah. Uh, they resume their conversation with Darcy, who gives them a micropod each that contains new identities for them. And says that they'll need bioports to use them, uh, which they had mentioned earlier in their conversation. And Allegra just assumes that they have until till Ted raises the possibility, like, well, I don't know. I mean, we have them in the real world, but maybe we don't have them in the game. Maybe we have to get new bioports. Um, they do have them. Uh, they they skipped that stage, but um, but they are slightly different. Uh, it's mm-hmm. expressed, and. Uh, Allegra then, after Darcy leaves, starts to complain about how poorly written Darcy's character is. <laughs> she starts nitpicking all of the sort of narrative and design flaws existing in the world so far based on her, like, 10 minutes of experience in it. How did you feel about that, Jim? Uh... I think she made some fair points. <laughs> it's it's fun, I think, <laughs> to to watch this happen to someone else, like in real time, <laughs> right? Because we do this. Yeah. You and I do yeah. this shit all the time, and to see a character grapple with it and be disgusted. <laughs> Brings me no small amount of joy. Yeah, yeah, it is fun. Uh, so, Pykele then uh, ex- has his port exposed for our pleasure, and uh, mm, and such a good port. Dorsey, pl- uh, d- d- sorry, bleh. Allegra plugs the uh, the micropod in, and it just she says it just disappears into his back, and that freaks him the fuck out. As as it would, I guess. As it should. <laughs> I mean, look, I'm a fan of hot pod on port action as much as anybody, but all the way in, 
You got to explain that to a doctor. <laughs> it reminds me of of a Jim Jeffries uh, routine where he talks about being on tour and going to a sex shop and getting a vibrating egg and oh, getting I've seen that routine. Getting yeah. it stuck up his ass. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he is deeply uncomfortable with that. You know, he's worried about it, like wrapping itself around his spine or whatever the hell he's he's doing. Allegra cannot wait to have oh, this yeah. experience uh, because she's oh, clearly all about the next big thing, uh, the next the next stage of her uh, sexual development. Uh, if she found the lament configuration, we'd all be fucked. Oh yeah, that should be o- that shit would be open so fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, she'd make even Pinhead like step whoa. back and go, "That's a bit much." <laughs> Steady on. I thought I had things to show you. <laughs> uh, the teacher has become the student. So, after the pod inserts itself, Pykel... Yeah, which we get to see, full we, hardcore. Full on, full on insertion of that, uh... They don't shy away from it the second time. And it is gooey. This is the other bit of CGI. Again, well executed, though. Like, I, that... It's, it's well enough done, because the organic, fleshy things in this are exaggerated enough in their practical effects that the CGI gets got away with it to the point that it only just occurred to me now that, it, that that's how it was done. So, good on them. Yeah. Um, and then Pykel tongues Allegra's bioport. Yeah, this is what I was thinking about quite explicitly when I said that earlier they were still being subtle. Yeah. Um, this is the moment when I'm like, oh, oh, they decided to take the gloves off then. But it, and she reacts with surprise and pos- and, and a, almost a bit of like revulsion. She's not happy about she it. Is she is doesn't... not. And Pykel insists that it wasn't him, that it must have been his character classic get out and this but this is so rich this exchange right because it is both believable entirely that Pykel would insist that it wasn't him doing it you know that this was a a character action but it is also like the scuzz bag like oh oh shit okay I could get away with this because it wasn't me. It was the devil that made me do it. Yeah. Kind of move. And and they never really, they, they don't extrapolate beyond what he said. Well, so it, uh, from it, a viewer standpoint. It gets justified by what immediately happens next. To some extent, but sort of, but yeah. it is Although met again... with this skepticism from Allegra. That's just like it's written all over her face that she is not sure mm-hmm. whether or not he's being honest with her here. Um, but I think that that carries on to what happens next. Well, that's it true. Is, well, because they keep it nice and vague as to really what's going on with these two and their relationship. Yeah, well, she she moves in at this point to kiss Pykel, and it just eventually becomes clear both through the dialogue 
but also in their actions, because this is not a passionate scene. This is a scene between two people who are acting against their will visibly. They are awkward. They don't know. They're awkward in the sense they don't know what to do with their hands, not because they don't know what the response that they're supposed to be doing. They don't, it's not that they don't know how to engage in the act of lovemaking. It's that the act of lovemaking is being thrust upon them at this point, and they aren't sure how to react to that. Yeah. You see, that's what, that's, that is a read on it, but when I watched it, I was also thinking that it could, it, it still could not be as explicit as that. That it could just be very awkward sex between two horny people who are not sure if they're doing it by choice or not. And I know, what you know, they, they talk about the, they're having sex to set up tension for the next scene. Right. Well, that's, but that that's could the just ju- as easily be con- a continued read. Con- that could uh, you could continue reading that as an excuse. Yes, you could say or that you that's could take it fully literally. That you could say that that's Allegra's justification for the actions that she's taking. Now it's again the devil made me do it, or <laughs> or that is actually it's so yeah, it is it's a really interesting seed. Yeah. Uh, Either way, once again, uh, predicting how David Cage would uh, continue to implement sex scenes in his own game yes because it is it 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 looks like what david cage thinks sex is (laughs) yes having played his games and the sex scenes in them and the times at which the sex scenes happen the characters doing it the sheer level of inappropriateness i guess is the word in both timing and the place like, all of it is like, I've seen this in Quantic Dreams work. <laughs> and very much as this film quite literally points out, it's there solely for cynical reasons. Um, Paykel is also sort of struggling still with the disconnection that he feels uh, from his body, and he's become worried about it. Um, Allegra does sort of smooth this over. It says, look, you, your, your sensory inputs are all functioning in the real world. If, if we ever are in any actual danger, you'll wake up. So that's, it's a valid point to, to be raised. Cause I would, I would wonder about that. You always wonder about that in these astral projection or, you know, Jack in situations, what the fuck's going on with the body. So it's nice that they quickly and, and, and succinctly, um, overcome that sort of objection um and allegra is sort of riding him and then it does a a quick cut on a close-up of pikel and he finds himself now on a sort of factory floor in what seems kind of like a barn and he's holding an amphibian and wearing a name tag that says larry and as he mechanically begins extracting organs from this animal, the guy next to him introduces himself as Yevgeny Nourish, or Nourish, Yevgeny Nourish, and explains that this had previously been a trout farm before becoming a game pod factory. Yeah. He looks like how. Imagine if Getty Lee gave up being in Rush and started selling porn in an alleyway. So this guy kind of looks like. Mm-hmm. And I'm 
I'm familiar with him. Like, I've seen him in other shit. But now for the life of me, I can't place where that might have been. Right? Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you recognize him? Am I nuts? Uh, now that you've said he's recognizable, my brain wants to tell me he is. But I'm not sure if... In a similar way, existence makes you question your reality. I am now questioning whether I've seen him before or not. <laughs> Uh, his name is uh, Don McKellar. Uh, he's uh, from Toronto. He, he's done stuff, but nothing I've seen other than this. But he seems so familiar. I don't, I, I don't get it. Because um, the other thing, too, is that he has sort of a, a distinctive look. His facial features are fairly distinctive. In a, in a way that I would feel like I would recognize him. Uh, but maybe he's just one of those people who gets that a lot. Uh, he's, he's lamenting in this, in this sort of exchange, though, that everything used to be something else, uh, which is a good point. Uh, here, here we have the, the, the trout farm that, or the, the former trout farm turned game factory, we, the, the former, uh, uh, yeah, but, but that extends to other things in, in, the film, right? Because this is supposed yeah. to be inside of Existence. Uh, but if you pull back further, all of the places that they've been to before they were in Existence were also places that used to be other things. Yeah, yeah, Country Gas, Ski Resort. Yeah, and so, and so we're seeing that sort of bleed through uh, that'll get yeah. discussed in, in... I mean, even something as simple as the mutated animals. Right. They're all things that were once something else. She mentions that the two-headed CGI creature, you know, part frog, part salamander, you know, they, they would, everything was something mm-hmm. different. Every, well, everything changes, and it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. Um, Sign of the times, as she said. Right. Oh, man, this transhumanist stuff is so... <laughs> mm. uh, so after revealing himself to be uh, an NPC by repeating dialogue. Um, Narish then suggests that Paykel should have lunch at the Chinese restaurant in the forest. The Chinese restaurant in the forest. And order the special. That stuck out to me because I remembered when they first go in existence, one of the games in the game store is called something like... Um, Chinese Restaurant. Survival. Yeah, Allegra... Like survive the Chinese Restaurant. Allegra examines a sign in the game store for a game called Chinese Restaurant. Yeah. Yep. Good eye. You were paying attention this time. No, I was actually listening to this one. This one, this one was good enough where I wasn't, you know, skipping out, like tabbing out to talk to Justin about filming plans and stuff. <laughs> So Paykel is then called to push a cart around delivering organs, and he comes across Allegra in her new identity as Barb. Now, she asks about what Narish told Paykel, and when Paykel doesn't answer the question, instead taking time to comment on how this world's game pods are a grotesque parody of the real-world ones that they're using to play the game, she then repeats the actions proceeding and up through her question as though she too is an NPC. Mm-hmm. So that happens. 
um, further just, I mean, at this, at this point, I think really any sense of understanding what's real and what isn't has effectively, you know, that train's left the station uh, now. Yeah, like this is, this is for people who watched Inception and thought maybe it was a bit, a bit oversimplified. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, show them this, and you're like, right, now you thought that was a bit obfuscate. <laughs> now, now cram this in your face, fucko. <laughs> um, they do go to lunch at the Chinese restaurant um, where everybody, like a, a bunch of people are just streaming to this place all at the same time as if it's the only place to go get food. Um, and all of the characters apart from, or all the actors in this scene apart from Paykel, uh, Jude Law, I, I never even bothered naming him. Wow. That's how little I think of Jude Law. <laughs> that's that's sad. I, I think earlier I slipped in a mention of his name. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, he's the only one who's walking like a human in this scene. Everybody else is not necessarily marching in lockstep but all just sort of staggering along because they're set characters. They're, they're, they're NPCs. Not, yeah, they're not important. They're on a rail. They, they don't need full animation. Right. But even Allegra is walking in this manner next to Ted. Oh, existence. It's fucking with you. Um, Pike orders the special from the very friendly waiter. Uh, and he initially refuses, the waiter does, saying it's for special occasions only, but agrees to bring it out when Paykel says it's Allegra's birthday. Uh, so the, the, the waiter leaves to go get the, the meal, but Paykel wants again to return to his body. He's experiencing that sense of disconnection. And he's freaked out because everyone else at the table sort of leaves when the special is yeah when, when the waiter acquiesces to bring out the special, the other NPCs at the table sort of get up and go. And and he's concerned that there could be some kind of a psychosis associated with the the playing of these games, which Allegra at this point again the experienced uh, master in this relationship. Uh, she takes this as a sign that everything is going really well, actually. That he is he's sort of melding into his role in the game more effectively than first-timers often do. Um, he suddenly stands up at this point and shouts, Existence is paused, and then just crumples down to the table. I love imagining... I love this this expression of how the game world gets paused. I think it's just... <laughs> it's like Michael Scott declaring bankruptcy on that episode of The Office. Yeah. It's, it's so appropriate for this weird world that they've established that that's what would happen instead of... You know what, though? I'm glad this film didn't get as popular as The Matrix because I dread going into any Chinese restaurant around the time of the film. If it got massively popular. Mm, Yeah, that would have been bad. Dealing with people yelling that out. Thank God it's a Cronenberg film. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Being back in the chalet doesn't really do anything to settle Peichel's discomfort, though, because he's now uncertain of the reality he's presently existing in. (gasps) Existence. 
And he comments that Allegra seems more like a game character to him than a human now. And and true to the form of this film and what it's doing and sort of the, the narrative constructs that have been previously established, Allegra then just blows off his concerns, passionately kisses him while he feels uncertain, and then they return to existence. Carry, playing out the very same scene that had just happened in-game, inside of existence, where the thing that needed to happen to push the story along is Allegra kissing Pykele, even though there's no <laughs> narrative justification or reason for it. Yeah, yeah. It's all, it just folds back. It folds back on itself like you're making a good cake batter. Like, that's that's what's happening here. Yeah, my, my, my bakers know what it's I'm like talking poetry, about. It's like poetry, it rhymes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the special arrives at the table in the Chinese restaurant inside of Existence and is a collection of mutated reptiles and amphibians which the waiter says offer new taste sensations. He's really, he's really upselling it. He is. He wants them to have it. And they decide, to, he offers to take it away, but Allegra insists that, that they're excited to eat it. And he wanders off again to continue being a waiter. Pykele starts eating again in spite of himself. Um, and, and he's mechanically assembling a gun just like the one the assassin shot Allegra with. Finishing by pulling a bridge, a dental bridge from his own mouth to provide the ammunition. Um, Allegra asks about this uh, bridge and asks if he has it in real life and he, he claims that he does not. Um, when the gun's completed, he aims it at Allegra momentarily, uh, saying death to the demoness Allegra Geller, freaking her the fuck out, and then puts the gun down, uh, apologizing for it. And now again, if under the rules that we're operating under, if this is an action that this care this player would not have taken otherwise then the character made him do it the devil made him do it mhm but why and it's this it is a strange incongruity that just raises more confusion and questions um But he he does express a desire to kill somebody, um, specifically the waiter. And Allegra flags the waiter over. Pykele shoots him uh, first in, well, twice in the cheek. The first time uh, he shoots him and the the waiter pulls a cleaver from behind his back and cuts off the front end of the bone gun, which then begins bleeding, which is Mm -hmm. strange. Yeah, Uh, those bones don't bleed. Allegra throws a pot of soup on the uh, waiter and then um, Pykele shoots him again and really just tears the fuck out of the guy's cheek. It is a beautiful, gory effect. 
And I also think that Cronenberg was saying a lot about the importance of going for headshots in video games. <laughs> oh, definitely. That's definitely in there. Uh, there's a lo- lot of depth, a lot of layers. Uh, Cronenberg, oh, yeah, so many layers. Cronenberg knows his, his video game logic. Um, so uh, Pykele uh, then drops the gun, and, and this whole scene has drawn the attention of the entire restaurant. It's just sort of... But it, it, there's no shouting. There's no expression of horror. Uh, these are sort of pale facsimiles of people. They just react by stopping and staring. Um Pykele does tell the tells the diners that there was a disagreement over the bill, this absurd justification, and everything just goes back to normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, a dog collects the dropped bone gun. Um, I loved the whole dog thing. The dog thing's the, the brilliant. The dog thing was my favorite, probably my favorite part of the weird shit the film does. Mm-hmm. Is is the the dog bringing the gun thing. Yeah. And and the way it wraps up at the end. So Allegra spots Nourish. Nourish? Nourish? Yes, Nourish. In the back of the restaurant and they follow him. Yeah. Now, he says that they have passed his test by killing the waiter who was a traitor to their cause. Now the cause hasn't even been expressed at this point. So there is some weird like disorientation stuff that this causes for the viewer it causes for the characters um it's basically like a call of duty campaign where you're being compelled to do a lot of killing and you've just given up even wondering why anymore it's 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 super unclear why you don't know who the good guys the bad guys are here this this thing has now been introduced uh who is us what does any of that mean uh, Nourish takes them behind the restaurant to these breeding pools where the animals used to produce parts for the game pods are grown. And uh, the restaurant was was established here when they discovered that, oh, some of the bits are pretty, you know, unused. Some of the unused bits could be made pretty tasty. And they're using this as a cover to mask their real activities as realist terrorists growing biological weapons. What? Checks out. Uh, and it, so it's at, at this juncture, it just becomes so overcomplicated and it's throwing so yeah. much crap at the player. It's just just on the, I mean, the viewer. And and most of, I imagine most of the viewers are like looking in the pond and going, look at that fucked up thing. Right. Because that's what I was doing. I was like, oh, that's a proper Cronenberg, that mm-hmm. is. Yeah, yeah, these, these creatures that they've created are just, they're, they're wrong. They're they are a wrongness. That's yeah. the only way to describe them. I think they really do. Uh, they they manage to make it look so biological and the variety at the same time so unnatural. Oh, yeah, it's it's great. Um, so having uh, proven themselves, Narish asks Pykele and Allegra to return to the trout farm which is owned by Cortical Systematics, the uh, company that made the other micropods uh, uh, that they, you know, it's, it's the corporate bad guy inside of Existens. Yeah, it's the game world version of uh, Antenna Research. Right. The Christopher Eccleston's company. He was the PR guy who got shot. I don't think either of us 
mentioned that the cringy PR dude at the beginning was the character Christopher Eccleston. I, th- I think we did right in the very beginning, but yeah. Um, but anyway, anyway, that's yeah, the distant past. That is it's so long ago. Um, they go back to the game store looking to get in touch with Darcy, who was the guy who was connecting them with their contact in the first place. The and and. Yeah. But they got a great guy to play Darcy just because he does look the most like a like an uncanny valley fake person yeah. with his face. He does. That's that's very true. Um and he was played by Oh, I'm not sure. Oh, 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 Robert Silverman is is the guy who played Darcy. Yeah. Um but Darcy's not there at the store. Instead, there's a, a different clerk, Hugo Carlaw, or Carlau. Uh, he, he takes them into the back where a dead Darcy is lying in state on one of the uh, storage shelves. And, uh, and, and Hugo retrieves the bone gun, which was brought back from the Chinese restaurant by the waiter's dog. Um, Carlau admonishes them for having killed the waiter, saying that he was their contact, not Narish, who is actually a mole working uh, for cortical systematics who's working to subvert the realist cause. <laughs> it's like this film is complicated in a good way. Uh-huh. Because it's silly it's, complicated. Yeah, because you could see a film that that is just bogged down and dragged down and, and, and drawn out by its complications. But here, everything is paced at such a good clip. And it's just used that, to disorient you more than anything. Yeah, yeah, it works. It's uh, it's supposed to be dizzying, and it works. And, yeah, it's impressive. It's it's so That's such a difficult thing to pull off, is to be obfuscating without being annoyingly vague. Yes. But... This film really does pull off the what's real, what's not thing uh, to, to a degree that is hard to top. Uh, Pikel and Allegra head next to the trout farm. And now they're, they're wandering through in this scene and they're going, basically going through the security line to enter the development wing of the trout farm. And I, I'm going to read this bit of dialogue because <laughs> I think it, I mean, this is the thesis of the film. I think more than anything else. Um, this is what Paykel says as the, to Allegra as they're going through the line. He says, I don't like it here. I don't know what's going on. We're both stumbling around together in this unformed world whose rules and objectives are largely unknown, seemingly indecipherable, or possibly even non-existent, always on the verge of being killed by forces that we don't understand. There is no better expression of the disorientation that blurs the line between fantasy and reality than this. Yeah. yeah. At this point, Pykel is describing reality. Well, I mean, that again, because this film isn't particularly subtle. That is more or less what Allegra then confirms. Right. She then, she then, but it's, I love the way it's phrased. I love. But the, the, the writing is beautiful, that whole. The horror of the realization that he's having here. Like yeah. this existential crisis that has just dropped like a ton of bricks on his head. That he knows nothing about what's real. Is uh, beautiful. 
they return to Allegra's workstation on instruction from Carlisle and find a diseased game pod there, uh, which Allegra has now figured out what they need to do. Uh, she's got to pour it into that shit because she cannot pass up an opportunity to pour it in to anything. She loves to port. <laughs> oh, yeah. She's a porter maniac. Uh, she's planning to acquire the infection from the game pod and then spread it to the other game pods at the farm, thus destroying them and uh, cortical systematics. Um, but she begins to be affected by it, and Pykel, unable to unplug the umbi cord, cuts it instead, which starts her bleeding out. So as Pykel's struggling with how to save Allegra, Narish comes into the assembly bay with a flamethrower. <laughs> and it's just this, like, weird climactic escalation, right? Like, it's just, like, bam, 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 one escalation after another because he burns the disease pod, but that causes to explode in this shower of spores that's now going to kill the game pods. And, I mean, have they won? Have they lost? What the fuck's going on? Allegra stabs Narish. Uh, the trout farm catches fire because he drops the flamethrower. And Pykel mm-hmm. draws... Hmm? I think at this point, once the flames catch on, Pykel literally says, I think we just yeah, lost the game. exactly. That's exactly yeah. what I was just going to say, is that this is the point where he assumes that they've lost the game. And it cuts to them back in the chalet where they're together on the bed again. And Allegra, looking at her game pod and, and seeing it, that it now looks sickly, uh, she determines that they have brought the disease back with them from existence. Sort of like a Freddy Krueger thing. Right. Uh, and she rushes to administer this sporicide that might fix it. Um, and refers to it as a weird reality bleed-through effect. Um, Pykel scratches at his bioport, and upon examining it, Allegra then draws a different conclusion, that Vinegar, her mentor from way back in the film, uh, actually installed an infected bioport into Pykel in order to destroy the pod. So doing, repeating the same thing, that I mean, it's basically the same gimmick that was done with gas earlier, right? It, it, it's demonstrating sort of a lack of creativity in this story's design in that it falls back on exactly the same narrative element in repetition to keep the story going. Um, yeah. That's, so that's good. I like that. Um. She gives, she puts a little device in um, Pykel's bioport in order to uh, remove the infection that he's got there. And uh, she realizes that the theme of disease that was running through the game, the infected uh, pods, the, the spores, all of that was the game pod trying to communicate to her what was wrong with it. Um, and unfortunately there's nothing she can do to save it now. 
There's some more sexual subtext here, by the way, folks. You think? If you haven't picked up on any. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, there, yeah, there is, and it, and like as I was mentioning in sort of the preamble, this is not the first time that Cronenberg uh, has sort of taken uh, a look at sexually transmitted disease and um, and all of that. Shivers is a yeah. uh, boy. That's a heck of a film. Ooh, it is uh, deeply, deeply unsettling. Uh, but yeah, so that's, that's absolutely going on here. And it's, it is, I mean, it is more subtle than, than ribbing the, (laughs) ribbing the bioport, I guess. Oh yeah. Yeah. But it's definitely written all over this scene. Uh, the windows in the chalet suddenly burst open, exploding, so to speak. Uh, Oh, oh, just before that, there is a bit where Jude Law, when he's in that room, having left existence, for a brief period, sees the room on fire as well. Just to, again, further add to that fuckery of what's mm. real and what isn't. Yes. Yeah, well, a, I think a Molotov comes into the room, and that's what sets it to... No, no, no. This is before he sees um, a corner of the room on fire, just like a corner of the trout farm was on fire. Oh, is that part of the and transition out of existence? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, when he leaves existence, he says... He sees... And then he says something like, maybe not. Right. After he thought... He said, we... I think we've lost the game. They wake up, says maybe not. And then he sees a bit of the room they're in, in quote-unquote reality on fire. And then it sort of isn't. Then it stops being on fire. Well, yeah. And again, it's more of that kind of head fuckery. Texture pop-ins. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <coughs> the draw distance on Existence is shit. So Car- Carlisle comes in uh, at this point. Um, dressed as a mercenary. Now, the only time we've seen Carlisle prior to this is inside of Existence. So this is sort of alerted Pykele to the idea that maybe they aren't out of the game yet. They might still mm-hmm. be in there. Um, and Carlisle destroys the game pod with machine gun fire. You know, it's just it, they want to make sure everything's really explicit and clear what happens, just like in a shitty video game. Um, so they draw a lot of attention to the game pod being destroyed. Um, and, and he takes them outside of the, the chalet, which is uh, now on fire, uh, from Molotovs and just, they're just blowing shit up now Uh, for no necessary good reason that I can tell, uh, that is apparent. Uh, he takes them up a hill to witness a, a battle below that he's calling a victory for realism. And so here now this, uh, concept of, of, of realism that was in the game, it's in the real world. Uh, he's about to shoot Allegra for the realist cause, but then is shot from behind by Vinegar, who's holding the bone gun, which he says was brought to him by his dog. Vinegar reveals that <laughs> Existence is safe, that he duplicated Allegra's pod and has the game in his possession and he's planning to defect from antenna research to cortical systematics, the fictional <gasps> company from within Existence. Existence. And he offers to bring Allegra and Pykel with him. But Allegra takes Carlisle's machine gun and uses it to kill Vinegar. Allegra's thrilled by all of this. 
Mm-hmm. She loves it, actually. She's really into this having killed uh, a game character thing. But Pykel is less into it because he's not so sure whether they're in reality or not. And taking the gun from Allegra in this process, he turns it on her and explains that he's secretly been a realist the whole time. Having undergone the Bioport procedure as a sacrifice for the cause. (laughs) And now he's going to kill Allegra with the machine gun. (laughs) But Allegra reveals... (laughs) This move is awesome. That she's known he was an assassin since the scene in the Chinese restaurant where he drew the gun on her. And kills him by detonating the device that she implanted in his bioport a few minutes earlier. Really good back explosion effect, too. Not bad, not bad at all. Alone on the hill, surrounded by dead bodies. (laughs) Alenker starts asking if she's won. And as the scene's camera uh, jumps... Glossy blast, glossy plastic bits start appearing on her head and on her ha- on the back of her hand, and an incongruous group of church pews appear on the hillside. And we cut to, and she's in a folding chair in a church in a focus group, with all of the other various characters who had speaking parts. Mm-hmm. It's very um, Dorothy waking up at the end of Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. Where these assembled people begin giving some feedback on the game that they've just played. Transcendence, capital C, capital Z, by Pilgrimage, capital P, capital A. And oh my god, those are the best names for this scenario. <laughs> the best. They are both laced with subtextual meaning and the most disgusting PR scuzzy like <laughs> they would love these names. Mm-hmm. Like why don't we have a publisher called Pilgrimage? <laughs> yes, exactly. Capital P, capital A. <laughs> capital A. <laughs> uh, Yevgeny Nourish is the designer uh, who has been running the session, and the others are all focus group members. And afterwards, Nourish talks with his, uh, after they have a little hash out session where they're all talking about, you know, the, the people are all talking about how they felt about the game. Uh, Willem Dafoe's magical in this scene. And it's, it's, it's important to note now, this is the first time in the film we're showed what's out of existence, what is or what is outside of transcendence. What is ostensibly, we're told now, because we could trust what this film is telling us, is the real oh, yeah. world. And now you can see in the performances in these actors, everyone's very naturalistic. And, and if you can compare it to their performances earlier in the film, it becomes really clear what they've been doing this whole time. And, and they are performing within performances badly. And it's 
I mean, yeah, yeah. Credit where credits due. You 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 see these fill. It, it, this is, I think this is better than. Uh, I see dead people. I really do. I think this is better than that Sixth Sense twist because while the Sixth Sense does hold up on a second viewing, it's not as, it, it doesn't feel as committed to the cause as this does. This goes to right. such tremendous effort to layer its reality. Yeah, I mean, like, like you compare it to um, uh, Sixth Sense, and, and it can be compared, of course, to Total Recall. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my first thought of this was, this asks, what if Total Recall was butt sex? <laughs> yeah. Um, you can compare it to Inception and, and all of these these films that, that do the whole what's real, what isn't kind of thing. And I think as, as far as committing and layering and really going deep in with it, while not, while still being just reserved enough so that it's not constantly being thrown in our face i don't think a film's done it better it it's one of those situations that i I think the reason it's so brilliant for me is that if you didn't know this was a david cronenberg film you know if you didn't know that this was a film being made by a talented i i hesitate to use the word auteur but a a filmmaker with a vision and ability to convey it, especially with all of the movies just that we've watched in this podcast series that we've done, mm-hmm. you would very easily be able to excuse it as a bad film that is sort of not sloppily made, but a director who wasn't getting the most out of his actors, wasn't getting the most out of the story, made a complicate a story that was too convoluted and complicated for its own good until you reach this point where it says, no, everything that was bad about this was bad with intent, with the intent to separate and delineate it from this other reality. Yeah. And and in order for that to work, the film still has to be watchable yeah. before that point. It's like I've always said that um, if you look at a band like Spinal Tap, where the joke is that they're not great musicians, that, you know, they do quote-unquote bad music, mm-hmm. but it's actually still entertaining to listen to and it's still fun. The music still oh, has to be listenable. Takes, yeah, the soundtrack still yeah. has to be good. Sure. It takes incredible musical talent to play badly entertainingly. Mm-hmm. Anyone can play badly. You know, you don't have to know how to play to play badly. But to play badly and entertainingly, that's what Spinal Tap does, and that takes such a degree of talent. And that's... This film is Spinal Tap in movie <laughs> It's done badly, but in a way that remains entertaining. And then it sets you up for the, you know, the end part, part of it. Um, where it all comes together. Uh, and so while you're confused by the whole film throughout it, and I realise we're basically just, we're doing the ending part that we normally do now before we've even finished the synopsis. Yeah. Um, but fuck it. We're, is this real or not? Who knows? Ooh, we're doing the same thing as Existence. 
um, I forgot my train of thought, but the train of the, the end conclusion is that thanks to the pacing and the performances up until this point, the film is still greatly enjoyable despite being bad. And so the fact that you learn that the bad shit was done on purpose and there's a point to it only makes it better. Yep. Yep. Uh, it's not like one of those things where you're watching a legitimately unentertaining piece of entertainment and people go, oh, well, that's the point of it. Like like the recent Wolfenstein that I've been playing where for half the game you are incredibly frail and it's not making the game fun. And people are justifying it by saying, oh, yeah, but that's the point. That's the narrative point of it. I'm like, I don't really care about the narrative point of it when I'm not having a good time playing it. And... That's where this film could have fell apart. Like, it would have had fans justifying it by saying, ah, but that's the point of it. But I'd be like, yeah, but I spent, like, an hour and 20 minutes feeling like I was having a terrible time. Right. But the strength of this film is I did not spend an hour and 20 minutes having a terrible time. I was still glued to it and fascinated and and unnerved and uncomfortable at points, but still along for the ride. So after this uh, focus group sort of gives some feedback on the game, uh, Narish is talking with his PR person, who's... Uh, um, I, she seems familiar to me, too. But I can't I can't uh, place her. I didn't recognize and I, I don't even know if she's credited uh, for that matter. I mean, I'm sure she's credited, but... Um, she's not listed on the Wikipedia page, so I have no idea. Yeah. Um, anyway, he, he's commenting on how unsettled he was by this gameplay session's anti-game focus, sort of introducing uh, again to some extent the idea that the game itself is created with influence from the people playing. And even in the feedback uh, section, it's made clear that Allegra and Ted had a prior relationship to being in the game. And that influenced the direction that their characters went into and explained their sort of sexual weirdness Um, and and those sort of forced romantic scenes because the game was picking up on that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the idea of their subconscious influencing the game is then further driven home. Right, because um, they collect their dog on the way out, and it's the same dog that was in the game. It's the dog. And they stop to talk to Narish and say that, you know, well, now now we know you're the greatest game developer in the world. And don't you think you should be punished for deforming reality? And they pull a fake skin off of the back of the dog to reveal that pistols have been hidden in holsters on its side. And they use them to shoot Narish. Yes. The dog that was constantly bringing people guns in existence had their guns. Yep. And, and that I, that was my... Out of all of the little clues and tip-offs and, and layers of this film, the dog thing was my favorite. It's, it's brilliant. Uh, they shout death to Narish, pilgrimage, and transcendence. And as they walk to leave, they run into the guy who played the Chinese waiter. Who asks? It's also important to note that everyone else, as when they shoot this guy, at this point, everyone else in the church are not 
again, not running away, no. not screaming. They've frozen just as the people did in the Chinese restaurant. And uh, they, yeah, the oh, I get goosebumps just thinking about it now. The the waiter asks if the the guy who had played the waiter asks if they're still in the game, and there's no response. There's just like three seconds of the two of them staring forward while they sort of ponder this potentiality, and it ends. It's and that's it, yeah. So, Jim, did you like Existence? <laughs> I did, very much. Um, yeah, it, it's it's my kind of bag. Yeah. I, I was very much into the performances. Obviously, Willem Dafoe's in it, Ian Holm is in it, uh, Christopher Eccleston's in it. These were you know, actors I've got a great fondness for. Um, the... Having been a fan of, of films like Total Recall, and, and I guess Total Recall could count as a, as a film we could do uh, at some point, although we'd end up having to do the remake as well. Um, I didn't think the remake was terrible. Um, see, I haven't seen it. Yeah. I was, I'm just assuming it's bad. No, it, it, was, it was not bad. I, it doesn't have the camp that, uh, that the Schwarzenegger recall has. but uh, What film does, because it was a simpler time back then. Yeah, yeah it really was. That that uh, like the two things that stick out in my mind. Of course, everyone thinks about the the mask that he wears, um, and the other thing is the yeah. the nose, his bulbous Schwarzen nose. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm. And the three boobs. Oh, and three boobs. That's right. Make me wish I had three Exposed hands. Exposed for our pleasure. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is. This is uh, one of, uh, I mean, it's maybe not one of my favorite films. It's maybe not even my favorite Cronenberg film. Um, I think Videodrome is just one of the best films ever made. Um, this is very, very much like Videodrome, however, in in the ways in which it plays with your perception of reality. And it... Well, as you mentioned earlier, someone brought up that it can be seen as a companion. Yeah, they, you can almost view them as bookends uh, to an extent on a period of, uh, of Cronenberg's career. And it... But it is... It earns everything it does. There's... It's... Yeah. Nothing's wasted in it. Uh, everything's there for a reason. And... I mean, hell, like, like when you look back and think about it, like, every shot has its place. Yep. It's like, it's like when I'm playing Super Mario Odyssey. Again, like a well-designed video game. It's not there unless it's to be used. Yeah. It's, if, if it's there, it has a purpose. Like, and it runs with um, the precision thing... of, a Swiss, of a Swiss clock. Like, it is yes. Yes. precisely paced to deliver exactly the sense of disorientation that it requires to keep you questioning. I mean, to, to really, like, go deep on it, one thing that caught my eye when I was watching the film was when they're first in existence, there's a lingering shot of, uh, I think it's Jude Law's character, Pykel, of his feet on the ground walking. And he's walking on what just looks like cut-up bits of paper. Um, like the whole floor is covered in it just looks mm-hmm. like someone ran magazines through a shredder and then it wasn't until you brought up uh, the earlier scene of Allegra kicking dust um, in that quiet scene that the parallels yeah. struck me that she's kicking dust and observing how real it is and then when we're in existence the floor is just looks like paper 
Like it's as if it's not been thought about right. as a thing to, to make it look good or convincing. Um, but, but the parallels never hit me till we did this and you mentioned, you know, you focused a lot on that kicking dust scene, which to me on first viewing was more throwaway than it actually was. Right. That's which again is why this has more uh, review value, I guess, than something like Sixth Sense or a lot of um, a lot of a lot of films that depend so wholly on a twist. Uh, there's there's just a lot more going on here than just the twist. Yeah, and 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 that was actually one of the reasons why you know because when we normally do this, you typically will watch the movie basically right before we record it. And I was kind of... Oh, yeah. And if I can help it, never think about it again. Yeah. And I was kind of hoping, because we had talked last week, and I was trying to pressure you a little bit to watch it a little in advance so you'd have some time to marinate on it and maybe uh, even watch it a second time because it is so woven and and layered and, and you can watch... I mean... I, Here's the thing. Embarrassingly enough, the dog thing only really hit for me this time, mm-hmm. even though it's so obvious. But I mean, that's the other good thing about this film is there are so many strands that different people will pick up on different things. Right. There might be people listening to this right now, like angsty and furious that we didn't pick up on their favorite strand. Right. That there was some theme running through it that we haven't mentioned that they loved. Or some recurring visual that we didn't spot. It is, um, it's a really, really special film. I think it's exactly the thing we needed <laughs> uh, by this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. I think this was the ultimate palate cleanser. Especially because I was looking up films um, partway through the synopsis to see what we were going to do next. <sighs> and I think we really, really needed this sorbet. Well, what are we going to do next, Jim? Well, I think it's time for another sequel. Uh oh. I think it's time for another River Bowl film. Oh dear God, is this going to be in the name of something? In the name of the King Two <laughs> colon Two Worlds. Oh no! No! <laughs> no Jason! No no Jason Statham in this one. No Ron Perlman in this one. We get Dolph Lundgren. Is is this the uh? Is this this isn't the one though where it's moved into like the military shooter, right? <laughs> That's the third one. Uh, I think the third one is the full ball shooter. <laughs> I think this one might still be fantastical. Okay. Um, but it's got old Dolph in the driver's seat uh, for this one, leading leading the charge. I do love Dolph. I'm sure will be a tour de force. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't? The man's a renaissance. <laughs> all oh, right. Oh, I'm all right. I. I am looking forward because I, I think that that's you know you just can't go wrong with Bull. I mean you can't go right with him either, but you can't. No. You can't go wrong for our purposes with Bull. If anyone's gonna follow Cronenberg, it's gonna be over Bull. <laughs> <laughs> we might as well just just drink from ditch water after having our wine. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll be the next one in the name of the King Two, Two Worlds. That's <laughs> you don't follow a two with a two. Come on, um, but that'll be the next one. And we do another podcast together, which you can listen to, called Fist Shark Marketing. Fist like a punch, shark like a chompy fish. Oh, it's not really. A, is it a fish? Uh, yeah, I think it is technically. Or a mammal. Yeah, yeah. It's a no. It's a fish. It's a fish. 
Um, it's got gills. Um, I don't know why I... There's dolphins that are mammals. Uh, sorry, I'm just having a sea life crisis, apparently. <laughs> um, but you can do that. Listen to that on iTunes, fistjerk.com. You can also follow Conrad on Twitter, at Conrad Zimmerman, all the one word. And I think that's it. We'll be back in two weeks' time for In the Name of the King, Two Two Worlds. Ah, <laughs> oh, I miss existence already. Bye. I wish I could just plug something in my back and just go back there and not deal with reality. Uh, but I have to penetrate my anus the old-fashioned way. <laughs> the future's coming, Jim. The future is coming. The future's coming, and then <laughs> so shall I. <laughs> <laughs> right, we'll see you later. Bye. Bye.